Welcome to Speducation, the special education podcast by Speducators and for Speducators, where we discuss all things related to special education, or as I like to say, Speducation from the point of view of professionals working in the field. I'm Sarah Perkins, a nationally certified school psychologist currently practicing in a junior high in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm Leanne McElwain. I'm a special ed teacher at an elementary school and have a background in secondary schools as well. I thought about starting with a super famous court case like Andrew F., but seeing as it's super famous, I thought it might be more helpful to start with a court case that informs special ed law but people might not know about. So that's where we're at. We're starting with Alberti versus the Board of Education of the Borough of Clementon. This court case was in 1993. It was a Third Circuit court case. Um, the Third Circuit is in Pennsylvania, New-, New Jersey, and Delaware. Circuit level court cases don't have the force of law nationally, but they do set precedents and are used in further arguments around court cases. And although court cases dealing with inclusion or least restrictive environment, LRE, have been appealed to the Supreme Court, they have declined to hear any of them. So this is one of the highest level court cases that we have on record related to LRE. One of my favorite things about court cases is just hearing the story. So here's the story, the facts of the case, as the lawyers would say. So the student, um, in this case they used his full name, was Raphael Oberti, and he had Down syndrome, and he had older siblings who attended the um, local elementary school, and he was attending a developmental kindergarten in that school. Then they had to have a meeting to discuss first grade placement, and the district proposed placing him in a self-contained program outside the district with no access to non-disabled students. Sounds like this placement was in a neighboring school district, and the school districts were relatively geographically close because New Jersey was close towns, and it was the school district that was closest that happened to have the type of program the district was recommending. The district court applied IDEA and said that Raphael had the right to FAPE, free appropriate public education, in his local school. And they said that they aligned their court order with IDEA and said that the goal of IDEA was to ensure that FAPE in the local school. One, one thing that was interesting that I don't know if you are aware of, Leanne, that I'd heard was that Um, It says the IDEA manifests a congressional preference for education in regular class with non-disabled peers. And I hadn't heard it phrased that way as like a preference. I sort of always thought that it was sort of like mandated, whereas preference sounds somewhat less than mandated. Mm -hmm. I don't know. How have you sort of thought about that? Yeah, I guess I have thought in terms of least restrictive environment that it's it's preferential but also up to the school to provide the least restrictive environment setting yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely well and i think that that's sort of what this case is hinging on because the school and the parents disagreed so it's sort of like who wins Mm -hmm. which is i think sort of simplistic but so all who wins and also who is right Mm-hmm. in their arguments and the language they used is that separate education should only occur and I think educators have heard this type of language before but should only occur when the nature and severity of the handicap is such that education in the regular classes with with the use of supplementary aids and services cannot be achieved satisfactorily 
I actually know that special education teachers have heard this type of language because it's on our paperwork, Mm -hmm. but I think sometimes we don't necessarily think about it. And it's interesting because the court sort of got hung up on parts that I think we as educators often don't. Like they were really interested in the supplementary aids and services, which we'll talk about, rather than the nature and severity of the disability, which I think is what educators tend to talk about. Right. I think that educators are interested in it because that's how the district that they work for typically structures the services and supports. And when you think like a district, they're thinking financially. Mm -hmm. And so then it comes down to what is fiscally possible, prudent, responsible. So I could see those being two different viewpoints. And it's interesting, finances isn't mentioned in this court case, full stop, on either side. Hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Another thing that I know we know, but it's important to remember, is the court found placement must be considered annually which we know, and that's Mm -hmm. why we have meetings. Mm -hmm. But it's important to remember that we consider, that we don't just assume placement continues. Mm -hmm. One part of the finding was that basically the district acted in bad faith in response to the law, which I find vaguely amusing. It said the district had not complied with the presumption for inclusive education. So basically they said like, the district's philosophical approach was misaligned with the law. Which I thought was bold of the court mm-hmm. to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so they said, for example, that the district should have considered barriers to a general education placement and if supplementary aids and services would reduce those. Then it said that they should have also considered what were the benefits in the restrictive placement and how could we have provided those in the gen ed setting. Mm. And then it said, even if they're going to be removed, they should still be in gen ed to the maximum extent possible, which I think comes up with a lot of these programs a lot. And I know that when you and I were working together last, we were really trying to get our students who are in programs to be more included in the school Mm -hmm. and not have it be an all or nothing thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that this district, it sounds as though their program was an all or nothing thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And I know that you current both of us currently work at schools that have programs for students with severe needs. Are you seeing that all or nothing approach that like kids in the program belong to the program and maybe only secondarily to the school? Or do you feel like they, your school's doing a good job with that? I think the school that I work at is doing a good job with that primarily because of the beliefs of the teacher. And then it's supported and backed up by the principal if any general education teachers have issues with um, what special ed students are getting versus what general education students need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's sort of maybe personality dependent. I I think so in that there's there's so much um, individual difference on how scheduling occurs that then that's based on beliefs of the principal and the and the teacher scheduling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my school this year, all of our students who have severe cognitive disabilities spend pretty much all of their time with each other in the program room. But to be fair, the teacher is new to that 
position and is interested in branching out for next year. And actually, we've already had some meetings with students who are coming into our school and have talked and have crafted like individualized schedules. So I'm excited about that, where they're going to be in the class for this and in a resource room for this, and maybe they could try a general education elective. Right. So I'm excited that she's open to that, but it's something new for this building. Right. And it's so again, kind of what you're describing, it's dependent upon the teacher, the amount of experience, and then also relationships with other teachers to be able to branch out Mm -hmm. rather than just that just occurring and Mm -hmm. that being a philosophy, which it sounds like this court case is saying um, that's, well, this decision is saying that that's not okay, that it needs to be first inclusion or with the other peers and then only out when it's necessary yeah we'll get to that no I think you're right though and I think that I that's how I sort of read the court case it wasn't Mm -hmm. it was worded professionally but it was sort of like you need an attitude adjustment district (laughs) right you know right like "Mm, this isn't up to you yeah this has already been decided yeah in fact the next finding I was going to read said the district recommended restrictive class size based solely on its size meaning the district size and the designation for students with cognitive disabilities so it's saying you only determined it because you felt like you were too small and because the kid has Down syndrome and like that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. And it says the family argued that they wanted the placement to be based on Raphael's strengths, what he could do and not what he couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And they said that when his he initially went into the self-contained program she said she walked in and it was like walking into a black and white film this is the mom as opposed to other classrooms that was colors and sound and light and joy and learning which isn't that sad mm-hmm. that's very sad i know it's so sad um they said that his disruptive problems in kindergarten was because the school system had not hired an aide. So that they don't quite get to finance, but it's sort of implied there. Mm-hmm. And that they he lagged behind his peers in progress because of his self-contained placement. Mm. And then after the New Jersey court ruled against the family, she actually homeschooled her son. And she felt that he was more successful in learning to read there because the school had told her that he could not read and she felt like they had just sort of given up on him. Mm. Okay. And then this part reminds me of some of the paperwork problems we're currently having in our district that says the burden to justify placement falls on the district. So like they have to convince the courts Mm -hmm. about why they were right otherwise they're going to default away from the district is basically how it said. And then it's interesting it says that the district had opposed the gender placement not because of his need, but just because they disagreed. So that so that part's not interesting, because it's just going back to that attitude adjustment. Like they just didn't agree with inclusive education, and that's why they proposed it. This was the part that I thought was interesting. They said the district has a duty under 504 of the Rehabilitation Act to offer benefits of inclusive education, and I thought that was surprising as a speducator because I tend to think of 504 as being outside mm-hmm. of our work like right related of, yeah but separate of the IDEA mm-hmm, exactly but it's interesting because it's like layering that law on top of IDEA right and it says that 
Um, they quoted the law and they said, no otherwise qualified individual with handicaps in the United States shall, solely by reason of his or her handicap, be excluded from the participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or any activity receiving federal financial assistance. So it's saying that not only was he supported by the philosophical backing of IDA, but also by 504. So I think that's important for speducators to realize that the courts are interpreting these laws as complementary. Yes, absolutely. Versus how we might in the field. Mm-hmm, yeah, sometimes we act like the there's like general ed and then 504 is like general ed light or maybe general ed heavy or sped light or something mm-hmm. and then sped. Mm-hmm. But it's less neat than that. There's like these two laws that overlap a lot and weren't necessarily designed to to perfectly complement each other's. It's messy. Right. And let's see, it also, um, it meant, there it does mention finance just in terms of funding, like when you get fed federal funding, you're obligated to abide by their rules. A big thing that they talked about in this court case was the supplementary aids and services and the lack thereof. I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So they did sort of pick apart the IEP. They said it didn't have a behavior plan, it didn't have a plan for toilet training, it didn't have a plan for communication between gen ed and sped, and to set up special education consultation when the student was in the gen ed setting. And that if it had those things, Raphael maybe could have stayed in the public school. Mm-hmm. So to me, as a sped educator, I'm like, ooh, we better have our poop in a group mm-hmm. before we argue with a family because behavior plan I feel like we would definitely like in our district we would definitely consider that probably the toilet training but making sure we had a plan for communication that's not usually spelled out yeah I think that would be a part of the behavior plan Mm. yeah I think you're right that would be a good place to put it so interesting that that the um, supplementary aids and services are viewed as lacking and something that could have allowed him to stay in the gen ed setting versus maybe just some accommodations that are tied to the disability not (laughs) to support in gen ed right yeah it's a slight lens change yeah because i think those are used for yeah i completely agree i thought thought that too because i feel like at least in our current culture that we work Mm -hmm. in the, the meat of the IEP is the SPED services, and supplementary aids are like extras. They're nice, maybe even necessary, mm-hmm. but they're just like, they're like the vegetables on the plate, and mm-hmm. the services are the steak. Right. And they don't even talk about services in this finding. It is all about supplementary aids and services. Right, so they viewed that as being the key component mm-hmm. to, to making gen ed. Yeah. yeah, which it does say in our pa- like uh-huh. in our paperwork that supplementary aids and services exist to allow access to either the SPED services and or Gen Ed. But I think this, obviously there's more to, than, to SPED law than just this one court case, but this, if you used this court case, you'd mm-hmm. say maybe we start there and then mm-hmm. only add SPED services when that fails. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Right? Isn't that an interesting? Because it also is then less staff dependent Mm -hmm. because then it's everybody needs to be doing that not just one staff person which i wonder is if that's why we have a hang up on it because in my experience when there's a thing that everybody should do nobody does it Mm -hmm. right it's like that 
advice you get in an emergency, don't mm-hmm. say to the crowd, someone call 911, right. point and say, you call 911. Yeah. I feel like that's what happens with supplementary aids, especially when you get to like secondary where there's lots of teachers. If you go, everybody make sure you fill out the point card, nobody fills it out. Mm-hmm. And so we as educators go, well, I can teach them reading. If I pull them in my room, mm-hmm. then I have control over that. Mm-hmm. And this is saying, mm, you should focus on the everybody fill out the point I card. I really think so. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I found that fascinating too. Mm-hmm. Another point the court made was that he had made progress in kindergarten. And so therefore, changing him to a more restrictive setting simply because of like availability mm-hmm. or philosophy didn't make sense given that he had grown in a gen ed inclusive setting. Mm-hmm. Which I think, I don't think we necessarily do that too much in our district except for when we change grade levels. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we do. Right, we base the students' schedules and programming based on the school structure of their schedule versus the student need. Yeah, whether they made progress or anything. Yeah. Yeah. They said that the district the court said that the district did not have evidence to support their assertion that the education of other students was significantly impaired. And I found that interesting because this is an argument that comes up often from general educators, but it can be from all educators that disruptiveness is a good reason to remove a kid. And the court basically said that's not really a good enough argument. Just having behavior difficulties and disrupt- disruptiveness is not a good enough argument. Yeah. And it would make sense at that point if there weren't any supplementary aids and services or attempts through a behavior plan to change the behavior. Right? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I think you're right. If they had, if they could document that they'd implemented those things mm-hmm. and he was still disruptive, the court might have been more impressed. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, they talked about the complete lack of non-disabled peers so that isolation I wonder if they'd moved him to that program but the program had been more inclusive like he'd gotten to go into first grade for calendar time Mm -hmm. and for specials if the court would have been as grumpy right I wonder too they said that there was evidence that the behavior was not a problem when there were appropriate supplemental aids and services so it was like ooh. You've got some mud on your face, district. Yeah. Discriminated against the inclusion, of course. They So what I saw as like the big takeaways for us moving forward is that it's up to us as district staff to provide proof that the student cannot be successful in general education, which I have to say, a lot of like the rigmarole we've had around corrective action in our district districts under corrective action from the state right now has been less than fun but I do think the focus on justifying the least restrictive environment is necessary Mm -hmm. an important shift for our special educators Mm -hmm. and I think it goes back to this court case Mm -hmm. and then it says let's see that they must prove that the provision of of the supplementary aids and services including the BIP was not enough which makes me think, like, again, they should have started there mm-hmm. before adding SPED services. Right. And then, again, we have to we have to remember, which I do think SPED educators are aware, that there's a preference for inclusion. Mm-hmm. So that one I don't think is shocking. And then the disruption is not sufficient proof. I think that one would maybe not surprise SPED educators, but might su- surprise the general education mm-hmm. teachers. Right. I think that on both of those 
pieces of information that I don't think it's surprising to speducators. I do think that it's difficult to implement or to use as a guiding principle because districts and general educators and almost just the philosophy behind where money goes dictates what happens next. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a building where, for whatever reason, general education has a lot of clout or a lot of say-so, you could end up with a more restrictive setting Mm -hmm. than a special educator would prefer, and they don't have any power to make it a difference. It can just be the mode of operation for a building. Absolutely. I think you're right, and it makes me think that what needs to happen is there needs to be a conversation with principals and general educators Mm -hmm. about this. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, you could end up, you know, subpoenaed for a court case because of what SPED does in your building if SPED's not allowed to do what is correct. And are you aware that these are the the findings of court cases and this is, you know, how things go down when, you know, rubber hits the road? Right. And I think a lot of them just don't know. Mm-hmm. Right, I agree. I think they, through um, just <laughs> discussions with people that they know, they get reinforced for the beliefs that they have, but they're really not, they're ill-informed. Absolutely. Then the another takeaway I had is that the district has to, has to have the evidence to show that they tried to allow Raphael or, you know, any student to participate. And this reminds me, we had a professional development where a lawyer said that special ed is a wait-to-fail model And what she meant is she said, educators don't like this. They want to sort of start with, start with their strengths and then build on their success and like add a little bit of time. But she said, what you really need to do is start with as included as possible. And then when that doesn't work, add more supports. And then when that doesn't work, add more supports. And then so on and so forth until you get to the most restrictive environment or Mm -hmm. to where it works. Mm -hmm. And those supports aren't necessarily service time outside of the gen ed. Classroom. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you have to start. You start at the smallest possible mm-hmm. support, and then. Mm-hmm. So I think again, that's something that educators have a hard time with, because then you're letting students struggle, mm-hmm. and I think also general education teachers have a hard time with, because mm-hmm. they're like, you have a resource room. Mm-hmm. Why does he have to sit here in math? Right. So I think that, for me, when that um, professional development presenter said that I was like ooh that's a tough pill to swallow for all educators and she said Mm -hmm. she's like no educator likes to hear that Mm -hmm. Um, but this court case reinforces that for me that Mm -hmm. you have to try it and have evidence that you tried it and that you added supports that were not services in a separate room Mm -hmm. first Mm -hmm. one important thing to note here is the court did not find that all students need to be fully included they did not find that Raphael needed to be fully included they, what they found is that the district needs to have a philosophy, sort of an attitude of inclusion, and take into mind the preference of the law for inclusion, and that the placement has to be individualized, and that they have to have that proof each step of the way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like this changed my viewpoint about approaching, like, I hadn't really thought through this law till this point. And so thinking this through, I think, my takeaway is going to be leaning into those supplementary aids and services and making sure that we have a really strong argument 
and maybe going back and telling my team a little bit about, hey, I know writing those really long LRE statements feels like a burden, but they're actually right Mm -hmm. (laughs) on that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would, yeah, I tend to think, focus on those supplementary aids and services only, again, I mean, we know, but only polling for what is absolutely necessary to be taught by a specialized teacher, you know, a special ed teacher, and then giving the students some time to struggle yeah, in right. the classroom, which is uncomfortable. For, for everyone, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. and I keep thinking, what this court case keeps reminding me of is like OTs, mm-hmm. because they're so good at this. Mm-hmm. And I feel like an OT would have been a good... F- team member and I don't the court didn't get into that level of detail of exactly who was on the team but if they didn't have an occupational therapist on the team I think that would have been a helpful person because they tend to lean towards what could we change in the classroom or who could push in and show the kid a thing or what tools could we provide and I think that perspective would have been really helpful in this case yeah it is a fascinating lens to look at service provision for kids with disabilities. Yeah, what what I, what I always think about special ed is, you, and actually you taught me this, mm-hmm. is that it's based on individual student needs and it's decided by a team. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by you taught me this is that whenever I would get, oh, but we have to do a thing, you'd be like, Sarah, slow down. You don't need to decide anything. It's decided mm-hmm. by a team. So I always remind myself, like, if you're deciding by yourself, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And those additional perspectives, like an OT, mm-hmm. might have slowed the role of this team. I mean, who knows what how the conversation went. Right. But it might have slowed the role of the team enough to go, ooh, have we really tried everything? Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. I think it's worth a discussion, um, a broader discussion with district-level administration to ensure their support mm-hmm. and to help them understand what teachers are trying to do or what teams are trying to do prior to uh, them getting complaints from gen ed teachers or, you know, the like. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes me think that some of our district programs, I think that we maybe as a district, I mean, we're in a sort of a moment of change as a district, so maybe this will happen, but we need to reconsider how inclusive we are and how flexible we can be Mm -hmm. in those programs. And I think because I think it really depends, like you were saying earlier, on whether the principal mm-hmm. is open to that, whether the, the staff in the building are open to that, and it shouldn't be person dependent. Right, which is difficult because we are all human. We all have different backgrounds, different trainings. But then I think if something is lacking, it's on the principal and the district to provide the training to help the staff build capacity and to be able to provide Mm -hmm. that, yeah. And it also makes me wonder, because we have some district programs that are housed in separate buildings Mm -hmm. where there is, by definition, literally no physical access. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. like they would have to get on a bus to access non-disabled peers. And it makes me wonder if that's a risky move on the part of the district. Mm -hmm. I think they're relying upon the teams and the documentation in IEPs defend mm-hmm. why the student is ending up there. I, do, I can, it is a different like perspective because I can see them being kind of difficult to work with when you're trying to get more supports for a student. And if they're using 
this court case as something to provide some guidance, it, it would take a lot to get a student to, to be outside of the homeschool away from the peers. Mm-hmm. So, Well, and I, I wish some of our central administrators maybe would communicate with staff from this kind of lens and say, mm-hmm. look, court cases have been lost on this type of thing. Mm-hmm. So we're not trying to get in the way of what you think is best for kids. We're trying to make sure that it is legally defensible right and I think it would be nice if they said what do you need to be able to do this mm-hmm. and then it comes down to funding <laughs> right to staff to do it or the opportunity to go get training or mm-hmm. so that's where that that support really comes in and hopefully yeah. we would have that <laughs> I almost wonder if this court case could I mean I'm just feeling spicy but could it help <laughs> in arguing for more attention to be paid to paraprofessionals because one of the things specific supplementary aids and services that was mentioned was a classroom aid aka a para and like in our district we are very short paras right now because they're not well paid they're not well trained and i wonder if that puts us in a legally risky place i mean i know it does in that at my school we are not necessarily providing supports written into ieps because we're so Mm short-staffed but even if but I wonder if we could get in trouble for being short-staffed and if we could get in trouble for the lack of training and support for those staff. Yeah, it would seem like we could. Yeah. And I don't, I, this is a side note and maybe a discussion for another time, but when you think about how you don't write staff into IEPs, how would you indicate that that, that support is needed? that that aid is needed. Right. And I would wonder if there were further explanations on this court case that specifically mentioned how to write it in. Yeah. Yeah. I I wonder that too. And I did try to find, and I'll have in the show notes, reference to the explicit court documents and as well as a couple interpretations that I looked at. The interpretations I found appeared to be you know, legal interpretations as opposed to interpretations from the point of view of SPED, mm-hmm. which I would love to see. Mm-hmm. I do think, you know, it's hard for SPED educators to interpret the law mm-hmm. in a way and to and to know that they did it correctly. Right. But I would love to know, you know, did New Jersey and or this school district take this court case and go, okay, given this, we're going to change what we're doing in the following ways. Right. That would be interesting it to know. It would be interesting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe maybe for a future for a future reference. But yeah, I do think writing adults, especially adults not tied specifically to like a goal or service into IEPs is a sticky wicket mm-hmm. that we certainly have not cracked in this district. Mm-hmm. So maybe yeah, we'll keep that in mind for future conversation. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we'll try and do more court cases, I think, as we move forward because it's interesting to think about how that interacts with our daily work. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that we get a lot of opportunity to think about. I agree.
education, education.